Hello. I'm so, it's so good to be studying God's Word this week. I'm Rhonda Burchard. Um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to uh, teach today. So this week we are in Lesson 21, Deuteronomy chapters 5 through 11. I like how last week Marianne described the book of Deuteronomy as a series of sermons, a series of sermons given by Moses to the Israelites. You could say Deuteronomy is like a series of pep talks preparing the people for the next part of their journey, which is actually crossing into the promised land. Deuteronomy chapters 5 through 11 are kind of like a highlight reel for the Israelites since God rescued them from Egypt. This week, Moses reminds them of their highs, like the Ten Commandments, and their lows of their unfaithfulness, especially the golden calf. It's good for the Israelites to look at where they've come so they can clearly see where they are going. Now, we have covered a lot of ground in this year's study. So before we talk about this week's chapters, let's recap a bit about the big picture that we've covered so far. Specifically, how did the children of Israel become the children of Israel? Remember, the Bible tells one complete story of redemption and relationship, which is why our study is called Redeemed. So we started in Genesis. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned, and because of that, the relationship with God was broken, and humanity was in need of redemption. We need a Redeemer. We need a Savior. Now, we know the Redeemer is going to be Jesus. But back in Genesis, God's plan was for Jesus to be born as a baby. So he needed a people. And that people group is Israel. But first, God had to form that group of people. So enter a man named Abraham. God called Abraham to be his guy, and Abraham said yes. So God gave the promise of land and the promise of people to Abraham in Genesis 15. Now, it took a long time, but Abraham finally had his miracle baby, Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and the promise was passed on through... Jacob, good. So regularly, we are reminded that Israel's God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now we're going to remember back to Genesis 32. Jacob wrestled with God in the middle of the night, and Jacob would not give up until God blessed him. God did bless him, and at the same time, the Lord renamed him Israel. From the middle of that night struggle, we get the name Israel, which means God fights. From the name Israel, we get Israelites or children of Israel. So the name Israel means God fights because God would fight for his people. They would have victory and receive his promises. We have seen this over and over again in our study. God is fighting for the children of Israel. He is determined to fight for them so they are able to enter the promised land finally. 
They just need to have faith to believe and obey. So the name Israel stands for God fights for his people. But interestingly, some other scholars interpret the meaning of Israel not as God fights for his people, but instead as the one who fights with God or the one who struggles with God. So in this case, the children of Israel could also be called the children of the struggle. And we have seen this struggle, haven't we? Ever since they were rescued from Egypt, the people have been struggling with God. Over and over, we see God rescuing them and providing them, and the people are rebelling, struggling against him, against his guidance, against his wisdom. And in case you haven't caught on, obedience is a big deal to God. So that's where we are in the story. Moses is giving the people a pep talk to prepare them for the next part of their journey, which is crossing into the promised land. But to tell you the truth, the Israelites have been having, how should we say, some learning challenges. Now, I know about this because I have a daughter, a wonderful daughter, and she has dyslexia. She loves the idea of reading. She loves to check out books from the library. She loves to make purchases at the school book fair. She loves the promise of reading. But the follow-through of the reading is so challenging for her. Since reading is essential, we've purchased a dyslexia program that we do at home to help make those brain connections for her. It is a very intentional program. When the brain has to be retrained, it doesn't just happen. It takes intentionality, usually on the part of the parent. And that is what we see happening with Israel since they have left Egypt. God is intentionally retraining their brains, reteaching them about who he is and who they are. And it takes time to retrain the brain. So I have a question for you. How did you learn to spell the word desert versus dessert? Raise your hand if you ever heard when you were in grade school that desert is only spelled with one S because you only want one desert, but dessert is spelled with two S's because you want two desserts. Raise your hand if you ever heard that. Okay, yes, yes, see those hands? So you know what I'm talking about. Unfortunately, the Israelites never learned how to spell dessert because they kept spelling desert with their disobedience. And so now they have spent 40 years in the desert without any dessert. The children of Israel have struggled with God because they were not willing to learn the lesson of obedience. And their consequence was that they had to stay 40 years in the desert. Their brains needed to be retrained. That's what God has been doing. That is how they got here. And now they are on the cusp of entering the promised land. Now, 40 years is a long time. It is considered a generation. But in addition to being a long time, the number 40 is significant in the Bible. 
An important tip to remember when studying the Bible is when something is repeated, you want to take notice. In our study this year, we have already seen the number 40 a multiple of times. Noah was in the ark 40 days and night. Moses met with God on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Moses pled with the Lord and interceded for the people for 40 days and 40 nights. Spies were sent to explore the land for 40 days. And now we have the people in the desert for 40 years. The time period of 40 is, a repeat, is repeated throughout scripture. In the New Testament, you're going to see it again because Jesus, when he fasts for 40 days in the wilderness, right before his public ministry begins. Now, some people think of 40 as a time of testing. You could say it's a time of proving, an opportunity to prove who you are. During this time of 40, who are you? What do you believe? After people go through this 40 time period, then it is a new chapter. So there are two distinct time periods, a before and an after. Things were one way before the 40, and then they were another way after the 40. And so a natural question to ask is, what was the person or people like before the 40? And what was the person or people like after the 40? Before the flood, the world had become completely corrupt in sin. After the 40, it was a new start. Before Moses went up on the mountain, the people said, yes, we will follow God. After 40 days, they were worshiping the golden calf. Moses pleads and intercedes for the people for 40 days. And after, God has Moses carve two new stone tablets for the people to begin again. God promises the people a land. The people request spies to check it out. After 40 days, the spies return and the people refuse to go into the land. And because of that, now the people have been in the desert for 40 years. Thereafter, will be entering the promised land. So when you read the number 40 in the Bible, it should be kind of like a bell in your brain and look for the before and the after because something will be different after the 40. It is a new chapter in the story, a new day, a time to begin again. And this is our very first truth. God is a God of new beginnings. God is a God of new beginnings. And praise God that he is a God of new beginnings. What about you? Do you need a new beginning? Lamentations 3.22.23 tells us his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. I love Isaiah 43.19, and I have it on my refrigerator. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? So the Israelites, the children of the struggle, are about to turn the page. They are about to begin a new chapter in their story. So this is a good time to reflect on the last 40 years. 
What were they supposed to learn during this time? What were the lessons of the desert? Sometimes when I'm going through a difficult time that does not seem to end my own personal desert, I will pray, Lord, help me learn the lesson. This is too painful. I don't want to go through this again. Help me learn what you have for me to learn. Show me. We always want to be open for what the Lord has for us. So if the children of Israel, the children of the struggle, were supposed to learn something in the 40 years of the desert, what were they supposed to learn? That is going to be our outline for today. I'm calling this the three big questions of the desert from Deuteronomy 5 through 11. The first big question is, who is God? The second big question is, who are we? And the third big question, is following God worth it? Who is God? Who are we? Is following God worth it? Those are really big questions. But I believe that really that is exactly what the Lord is trying to get the children of Israel to answer. Not only as a people, but as individuals. And I believe we will find the answers in this week's study. So let's go ahead and jump in with question number one. Who is God? So to answer this question, we're going to look at Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. It is so great that in this week's study we get to read the Shema. That is what they call Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. It is called the Shema after the first Hebrew word of the verse. Shema, which means hear. So literally, if you look in a Hebrew Bible... Verse 4 begins, Shema Israel, which is translated as, Hear, O Israel. The Shema is widely regarded as the very heart of the Jewish confession and faith, and Jesus agrees. In the New Testament, when Jesus is asked what is the greatest commandment of all, he quotes the Shema in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 38. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. There are two things that we can pull out as to who God is in the Shema that are key to the Jewish faith. The first key description about God is the Lord is one. So what does it mean that the Lord is one? Good question. There are really two ways to think about the Lord being one. One way to think about it is the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. In fact, this is exactly how the New Living Translation reads, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. This would be an affirmation that the Lord was the sole object of Israel's devotion. The Lord is the only one. The second way to think about the phrase, the Lord is one, is that the Lord is unique. In this way, we are affirming the Lord's superiority to all other gods, It would also imply that he is the only one worthy of their worship. 
This goes right along with another verse in this week's lesson, Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. He is unique. I think it's both. The Lord is unique and he alone should be the only object of their worship. Some verses bring out one point and some the other, but it is both. The Lord is unique and he alone should be the object of their worship. And of course, we know that the Lord does not change, so this is a great truth for us too. The Lord is unique and he alone should be the object of our worship. So I don't really know how else to say this except to say this is a big deal. Because we know that when something is repeated in the Bible, it is important. And in this week's lesson, Deuteronomy chapters 5 through 11, in all seven chapters, this is repeated in some way. So let me highlight them quickly. In chapter 5, we have the Ten Commandments, where it says, You shall have no other gods before me. Chapter 6, verse 14, Do not follow other gods, the gods of people around you. Chapter 7, verse 16, Do not serve their gods, for they will be a snare to you. Chapter 8, verse 19, They are told if they follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, they will be destroyed. Chapter 9, they are reminded of the golden calf fiasco of their history. Chapter 10, verse 17, for the Lord is the God of gods. And in chapter 11, verse 16, he warns them, take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn and serve other gods and worship them. Every single chapter in this week's lesson retells this point. The Lord is unique, and he alone should be the object of their worship. This is non-negotiable. If Israel forgets this, it is a we-need-to-have-a-conversation experience because God is not happy. It is number one of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. They need to get this point. And so do we. Nothing should come before the Lord. Nothing. But to me, what has been so interesting about this story is that God has been with them the entire time since leaving Egypt. We have seen in our study that they have had a visual manifestation of God in a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. We see this in Exodus 13, 22. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. And additionally, they have smoke over the tabernacle. They cannot forget that he's there. He's right there. They can see him. So what is going on? Why are they not getting it? Why does God have to repeat to them over and over about who he is? I've even heard some of you ask this in your groups. 
It's an important question. Why are they not getting it? We're pulling out our hair, right? What is going on? So let's look at the commandment, commandment number one in Exodus 23. You shall have no other gods before me. If you have your Bible with you, you might note that in your Bible, next to the word before, there often is another option to the word before, and that word is besides. So this could be worded, you shall have have no other God besides me, or instead of me. So basically that means the same thing that we already say, you shall have no other God before me, or... Option number two, now this is where I personally get kind of geeked out about the Bible, and this is where I think it gets really cool, because it could mean you shall have no other God beside me, or alongside me, or together with me. Now, this is where I get excited because I see all kinds of application. Because the thing is, I don't think the Israelites were completely disregarding the Lord. He was right there in front of them. They couldn't miss him. He was a pillar of smoke or a pillar of cloud or he was over the tabernacle. Instead, I think they were tempted to put another God alongside him in addition to him. The temptation was to put another God alongside the Lord. Let's remember where they came from. In ancient Egypt, they had over 2,000 gods. And they were very specific. They had a single God to protect them from scorpion bites. They had another God to protect them from crocodile attacks. And they had another God to protect them during childbirth. The other thing they did was they combined gods. So if one god had this trait and another god had this trait, they could combine them to create exactly the god that they wanted. So they had this mix and match philosophy about gods. I believe the temptation for the Israelites, having lived in Egypt their entire lives, the temptation was... God plus. Maybe they're thinking, sure, we have the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire, but what about the scorpions in my tent? (laughs) They thought they needed God plus, another God alongside the Lord. That was what they were used to. That was what made them feel more comfortable. You know, just to be sure, we've all the bases covered. Look at the way the golden calf episode reads in Exodus 32, 4 through 5. And he, Aaron, received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be the feast to our Lord. Isn't that a strange experience? Do you see the words, these are your gods? It's plural. And one commentator says that Aaron, with his phrase, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, he is trying desperately to redirect their worship to Yahweh, but the people were already way beyond his control. 
This really isn't so different from today though, is it? Maybe we don't think of it as worshiping another God because we do worship the God of the Bible. But do we also trust in something else? What do you trust in? Maybe it's I trust in God plus my bank account. Maybe it's I trust in God plus medicine. I trust in God plus I'll have this little gig on the side. I trust in God plus fill in the blank. Have you been hearing about this college scholarship scandal that's happening right now where parents have been paying huge sums of money in order for their child to be offered a scholarship to a prestigious college for a sport they don't even play? Additionally, they fake their test scores that are being issued for college entrance exams. Now, I'm not saying these people are, are people of faith. I have no idea. But it's a clear example of the kind of thing that can happen. I trust God, but I'm going to buy my child's way just in case. So easy to see how it happens. But then what about me? Where am I tempted to trust God, but trust something else on the side just in case? Last week, my family had a very difficult event. I'm not going to tell you the details, but there was a big escalation between our two daughters, and it was scary and incredibly concerning. As some of you know, we adopted our daughters from the foster system, and they're awesome and amazing and beautiful and fun, and they are children who've experienced trauma. And because of this, we continue to work with them day in and day out. So on Wednesday night last week, I came home late after teaching a class, and my husband explained to me exactly what happened. And I'm going to be honest with you, I felt very overwhelmed by the situation. Often with my little people, I have learned what to do, how to respond, and so when teachers and family members come to me looking for answers, I give them the answers so everybody knows how to respond and what kind of situation but this time I didn't know what to do. And I said to my husband, I am out of my league. I don't know what to do with this. So I told him, please type up everything that happened and we're gonna email this tonight to our team. So we did, we sent it to our girls counselor, behavioral developmental pediatrician that night about 10.30. Then we went to bed and before going to bed, we prayed about the situation and our family. As I was preparing this lesson this week, I wondered, do I have a God plus? Am I trusting our team before I trust the Lord? Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to have a team. In fact, our care team is so meaningful to me, I actually believe that God provided our team for us. Our counselor, therapist, behavioral developmental pediatricians, they are such an encouragement to me. It's not a problem that we have a team. Moses had a team. We know that Joshua is going to be the next leader of Israel, but actually Joshua is not new on the scene. Joshua is identified as Moses' assistant way back in Exodus 24. Also, earlier in the study, we saw Moses' father-in-law helping him figure out a plan to organize the judicial needs of the people. Moses has a team, The problem is not my team. 
The potential problem is who do I most identify as my first resource for help? In a number of these lessons this year, I have been so moved when Moses falls on his face before the Lord, pleading for the people. Hasn't that been beautiful? Moses knows where he should turn first. I'm not being hard on myself, but it is a valid question. Who are you turning to? Who am I turning to for security, for confidence? I'd like to get to the place where I call on the Lord first in the moments of crisis and then call on the team, which he has helped put, us in, put in place for us and our family. One more thought about the uniqueness of God. I have a new appreciation for the worship song that sings, Holy, there is no one like you. Because this may be surprising to you, but one of the definitions of holy is unique. Therefore, holy, there is no one like you. Holy, you are unique. And because of God's holiness, because of his uniqueness, he is uniquely able to meet our needs in a way that nobody else possibly could. The Lord is unique and he alone should be the object of our worship. The second key thing about the Lord we also see in the Shema is that he is relational. Let's look at again at Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Our God is a relational God. He loves us and he wants us to love him. He is motivated by love. Remember, our study this year is called Redeemed. God's redemption is motivated by love. One of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I showed you part of Lamentations 3.22 through 23, a few minutes ago, his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. But here is the entirety of the verses. Because of the great Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It is because of the Lord's great love that his mercies and compassions are new every morning. Love is the great motivator of God. As 1 John 4, 8 tells us, God is love. Now here is where it is interesting because yes, God loves Israel as a people and he has a plan for them as a people. But the relational aspect of God is also individual. He wants a personal relationship with you, not just the group, but you, and you, and you, and me, each of us. The second truth we find about God in the Shema is our loving God desires a personal love relationship with each of us. Our loving God desires a personal love relationship with each of us. 
Let's go back to John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever means each person as an individual. This is not just loving the group. You know, there are many genealogies in the Bible, and it has been said that the reason for the genealogy is the importance that God places on the individual. God is love, and God loves you. So we've answered the first question of the desert. Who is God? And it's our two truths. The Lord is unique, and he alone should be the object of our worship. The Lord is our loving God who desires a personal love relationship with each of us. Now let's turn to the second question of the desert. Who are we? Let's go back again to the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. We are people with heart, soul, and strength. This next part, I'm going to give you some really practical suggestions. So perhaps you might want to write some ideas down that you'd like to follow up with. But let's take a look at those three words, heart, soul, and strength. First, heart. Now this is going to take a little bit of readjusting for your thinking because our perception of the word heart is so different than the Old Testament view of the word heart. In 2019, we think of heart as emotion, our feelings. But this is a very different um, perception rather than when the Old Testament was written. So when Moses wrote this, the heart was considered the location of the mind or the intellect. So when someone was thinking, they would think with their heart. So heart equals mind in the Old Testament. So how do you love, the, love God with your mind? It seems to me the easy answer is to think about him. The Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Think about such things. It's an active thinking. This is such a good list. Maybe you should have it when you're choosing your next movie, right? What are you thinking about? Whatever it is, this is your heart. So let's look at the word soul. Soul in the Old Testament is your very life. Now this is your passion, your emotion, your desires, your whole being. Years ago when the Titanic sunk in 1912, the newspapers around the world reported how many souls were lost because that represented the entire person, the things that make you uniquely you. So how do you love God with your soul? To me, this seems like an invitation to service. Serve the Lord with your passion, with your emotion, and your desires. What do you have a passion for? What do you love to do? What makes you excited? 
find a way to serve God with that. If you do not have an area of ministry, I encourage you, take an inventory of what you enjoy doing. Spend some time with the Lord asking him how he can use your gifts and your passions. There is nothing better, there is nothing better in life than serving the Lord with your passions and gifts that he has uniquely given you. And I am a strong believer in the idea that as long as you are alive, you are meant to serve the Lord in ministry to humanity. That is my personal belief. In the New Testament, Paul talks about spiritual gifts. I like how the New Living Translation reads, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, a spiritual gift is given to each of you so we can help each other. Doesn't that sound good? So we can help each other. I like that. As we have seen, Jesus quotes the Shema in Matthew, but then he goes on. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There goes Jesus, always adding something, making it a little bit deeper. How are you loving your neighbor? Who are you helping? Also in Matthew, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Who are you serving with the gifts that God has given you? That is loving God with your soul. So let's look at the word strength. The definition of strength from the Hebrew Bible is kind of funny. The first definition is muchness. Isn't that funny? Muchness. You should love God with all your muchness. This is with all your force and with all your might. So how do you love God with all of your strength? This one you can look at a couple of different ways. The first you can think about is that is to what degree do you love the Lord? For example, exceedingly or abundantly. So that's an interesting thing to think about. But the other way to think of strength is force or might. You might think of your body. How do you love God with your body? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 tells us, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So how do we honor God with our bodies? It seems to me a key thought is to take care of your body so you can serve others. Take care of your body so you have the strength to serve others. Of course, we all want to be beautiful. The temple in the Bible was beautiful, but it was also a place of serving the Lord. Take care of your body so that you are able to serve others. There is another way to honor your body. Now, ever since I knew I was going to teach this passage, I have felt such a burden about the idea of loving God with our bodies. And so I have to go to this place because I feel like the Lord wants me to talk about pornography. 
Statistics are telling us that it's growing in every area of society, including with women and including with children. It is crazy. You know it's crazy out there when Starbucks has had to start banning pornography sites on their free Wi-Fi, which is what they have just done this year because they were, quote, unable to stop guests from using their network to browse pornography. Starbucks. According to the website fightthenewdrug.org, pornography harms us in three ways. It harms our brains, it harms our relationships, and it harms our society. In the past, this has been perceived as a problem of men, but it is impacting all of us. My 13-year-old daughter, when she comes home on the bus from school, there are kids with their cell phones looking at pornography on the bus. And this is what I feel like I'm supposed to say to you. If your husband asks you to watch porn with him, to spice up your sex life, or to help your marriage, don't do it. It will not help your marriage. Find a Christian counselor and get some help. You are to love the Lord your God with all your strength, with your beautiful body. The truth is we were called and designed to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and strength. And our heart, soul, and strength work together. They impact each other. So don't ignore any part of you. What part of you needs attention? Your mind? Your emotions? Your body? How can you better love the Lord with your mind? How can you better love the Lord with your emotions? How can you better love the Lord with your body? So we've answered the second question of the desert, who are we? The answer is we were called and designed to serve the Lord with our heart, soul, and strength. The last question of the desert is, is following God worth it? Let's go back to the Shema one more time. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. We have talked about the Lord being our God of relationship in that he loves us and wants a love relationship with us. But this verse says that we are to love him. The word love in this context communicates not so much emotional, an emotional idea as one of covenant commitment. So to love the Lord is to absolutely be loyal to him and to be obedient to him in every respect. Remember this truth is the one that Jesus himself taught very clearly in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the truth is, following God comes with a cost. Following God comes with a cost. Loving God means you have to obey his word. 
And if you obey, that means you have to give up control. It means you give up your rights. We have seen that with the children of Israel. Not everyone was willing to pay the cost of following the Lord. They wanted their own plan. They wanted their own way. We see this in the New Testament also, that there is a cost that comes with being a Christ follower. So where are you right now? Are you in a time of your own personal desert? You will find that the three questions of the desert are, for the, same, are the same for us as they were for the children of Israel. Because as believers, we are also children of the struggle. It's hard when you are in the desert. Sometimes it feels even more difficult when we read verses like we've read here in Deuteronomy recently. Keep his decrees and commands which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you and that you may live long in the land of the Lord your God gives you for all time. We hear that and think, well, I'm following your commands and it is not going well. Things are hard. Life is hard. Hang on, my friend. Hang on. Just keep doing the right thing. Jesus told us, in this world you will have trouble. You will have struggle. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus overcame the world when he rose from the dead after dying on the cross for our sins. He did this to redeem us. That is the big story of the Bible that started in Genesis. It's the story of redemption and relationship. In John, in 1 John 4.10, he writes, This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. So the final question of the desert is, is following God worth it? This is a question that Jesus asked of his own disciples. He asked them whether they would leave him. Simon Peter is the one who answers. Now Simon Peter is becoming like my good friend. I just really am learning to love him. He answers the Lord, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. He said, there's nowhere else to go. Where else are we going to go? Only Jesus offers the redemption and the relationship that leads to eternal life, which leads us to our final truth. And this is a beautiful truth in the middle of Easter week. The Lord is worth following. Because he loved you so much that he died for you. The Lord is worth following because he loved you so much that he died for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these questions in the desert. Thank you for focusing our minds on what exactly the children of Israel needed to learn. And it's no surprise, it's exactly what we need to learn. We need to learn who you are, who we are in your eyes. 
And we have to make a decision. Is it worth the cost? Is it worth the price? And we thank you, Lord, for what this week represents, that you love us so much that you came to build the relation, rebuild the relationship, to redeem us. Thank you, God, for that. Lord, I ask you to be with these women. I know some of them are in the desert. I don't know what their deserts are. I ask you to pull close. May they feel your presence. May they feel that you have a plan for them, and it is a plan for good. Ask you, Lord, just to be with us in our groups, and may we be quick, Lord, to give you praise for every good thing. We love you, Lord. Amen.